Father, that is our prayer, that you would be crowned the Lord of all. We recognize that we are your creatures, that you have made us and formed us, that you are the creator, that you are the sovereign over all things. And so we come today yielding ourselves to you, bowing before you, acknowledging your supremacy, your authority, and your power. And we ask that you would guide and direct us, that we would be pleasing in your sight, that we would walk according to the likeness of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated. We want to welcome you to Martinsdale Community Church. We're glad that you're joining with us this morning, whether here in person or via the live stream. We want to welcome you all. If you haven't already, now's a good time to double-check your cell phones, make sure those are off so they're not a disruption during our service. We're continuing our series on justice, race, and the Bible this morning. Uh, Last week and the week before, we recommended two books to you, Discrimination and Disparities by Thomas Sowell and Bloodlines by John Piper. Uh, Those were all sold out last week. We've got new ones in stock today, so if you looked for one last week and weren't able to get it, we have about 10 copies of each uh, in the bookstore, and you can grab one of those if you want. We'll be having a combined ABF this morning, covering some additional material from this morning's message and hopefully having some time for Q&A. And then next Sunday, just a reminder that we'll be having our quarterly congregational meeting. That will be during the ABF hour. And if we finish that early, we might have some time for additional discussion, but we'll see what happens next week. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 94, Psalm chapter 94, and I want to begin this morning by reading this psalm, and I invite you, if you're able, to stand with me for the reading of God's Word As we begin this morning, Psalm 94. O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour out their arrogant words. All the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. And they say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. Understand, O dullest of the people, Fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of the man. 
that they are but a breath. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law to give him rest from days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. For justice will return to the righteous and all the upright in heart will follow it. Who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against evildoers? If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have lived in the land of silence. When I thought, my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Can wicked rulers be allied with you, those who frame injustice by statute? They band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has become my stronghold and my God, the rock of my refuge. He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord, our God, will wipe them out. Let's pray. Lord God, you are the only source of justice. There is no other source of righteousness or justice in this universe. And so we come this morning and we ask that you would teach us about your justice. That you would show us our injustice. And that you would teach us to walk in righteousness. For your name's sake. For the good of your people. And for the good of this land. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Last week, Pastor Jeremy began our series on justice, race, and the Bible by looking at the biblical requirements for justice. Most significantly were the requirements in the law to have the testimony of two or three witnesses, to perform careful inquiry, and to allow for cross-examination all prior to rendering a verdict. These are pillars of biblical jurisprudence, the right way to handle accusations, condemnations, and acquittals. And in order for us to remain just and righteous while condemning someone else, we must be faithful to this process. There may be times when in God's sovereignty, a criminal is set free due to a lack of evidence. And there may be times when following this process, an innocent person may be condemned. But God foresees even that, and he promises that if we are faithful, he will in the end judge justly. He will condemn the guilty, and he will acquit the innocent. 
Now, we're working our way in this series toward the issue of racism, but we want to be careful not to jump there before first laying a foundation from which we can judge and make just decisions in general. Next week, Pastor Jeremy will deal directly with the sin of racism, but this morning I've been asked to clarify a related issue which often gets tangled up in the discussion of justice, and that is the confusion between inequality and injustice. Perhaps some confusion arises merely on linguistic terms, because injustice and inequity are basically synonymous. But that's enough, that's easy enough to clear up. Iniquity, or I'm sorry, inequity, is having a bias or showing partiality. That is a type of injustice. But we're not dealing with inequity, we're dealing with inequality. And it is precisely inequality that is at the root of so many cries of injustice in our current national climate. So let's define our terms and look at what we learn from them from Scripture. A, in your outline, inequality simply means not equal, not the same. Not equal, not the same. That's very simple, easy to understand. Inequality means two things are not the same. In equal, that's an inequality. And last week we saw the definition of injustice, but just to make sure it's fresh in your mind, be injustice, a failure to fulfill your duty to your neighbor. A failure to fulfill your duty to your neighbor. So it is an injustice when you ought to do something for your neighbor and you don't. It is also an injustice When you should not do something to your neighbor, and you do. You have a duty, you fail to fulfill it, that is injustice. We add your neighbor because it's important that we deal with flesh and blood human beings. That injustice not be abstracted and dealt with only in hypothetical or theoretical ways. Those are the definitions, pretty straightforward. Inequality, not equal or the same. Injustice, failing to fulfill your duty to your neighbor. Now, before we look at what the Bible says about each of those, I want us to consider how these concepts bounce around in our own minds. I've noticed a tendency both inside the church and outside the church To act as though inequality, not being the same, is inherently unjust. If it's not fair, it's not right. Now, I think at some level we know that's not true. But when you're called on at a birthday party to cut up the birthday cake, don't you all try to cut perfectly equal pieces of cake And when you accidentally cut one a little smaller and you give it to the next kid in the line, you say, I'm sorry, maybe I should cut off a little more. 
We apologize to the kid who gets a piece of cake that's five grams less than everyone else's. And we might not be surprised if the kid says, Oh, mine's smaller. That's not fair. We're at a birthday party. You didn't do anything to earn that slice of cake. What do you mean it's not fair? You didn't earn it. You have no right to it. Here, how about this? You get no cake. Have I done you any wrong? Did I owe you a slice of cake? You didn't earn it to begin with. So I have not given you or done any wrong to you by not giving you a cake. I didn't give all the other kids on the block any cake at all because they didn't get invited to the party. Have I wronged all of them? And how many of you have noticed that at Christmas time, buying presents for the kids or the grandkids, don't we all do silly things like count how many presents each kid has? Or tally up how much money we've spent on each kid. As if to say, if we spend $50 on Billy and $100 on Susie, we're wronging Billy. Did you hear the first part of that sentence? You spent $50 on Billy. Billy didn't earn $50. You gave him $50. How can you wrong him by not giving him enough? What are we doing? (laughs) How about this? Billy, not happy with your $50? Why don't you give it to Susie? You get zero. Susie, you get 150. Have you wronged anyone not unless Billy earned that $50 do I have a duty to give Billy gifts is it my obligation morally to provide gifts for my children no it is not my duty and therefore it is not a matter of injustice if I give to someone more than to another And if I give something to one person that in no way obligates me to give equally to everyone else. Now what I want to show you from scripture is that our inclination to make everything equal. To avoid inequality at all costs is not God's inclination. In fact, I feel pretty safe saying God delights in spectacular inequality. God loves to create intense, visible, glorious diversity. He loves it. And he does so with perfect justice. So let's look at just a sample of how much inequality God is directly behind Let's start in Genesis chapter 1. Now we're going to move quickly through this. I think most of this uh, might even go without saying. But I just want it to be fresh in your mind. Genesis chapter 1. 
Genesis chapter 1. Day 1, verse 4. God separated the light from the darkness. He makes light and he makes darkness. Are light and darkness equal? No, they are not. Day 2, verse 7. God makes the expanse and he separates the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. He makes light and darkness. He makes some things above and some things below. And then day three, he calls and creates dry land earth and he creates the sea, the waters gathered together seas. He makes the land and he makes the seas. Obvious Are these equal? No. What is God doing? He's actually creating inequalities where none existed. He's making distinctions between things. He's creating differences. Day four and day five. On day four, in verse 16, God creates two great lights. One to rule the day. That's the sun, and one to rule the night, that's the moon. Are they the same? No, they are not. Does the sun equal the moon? No, it does not. They are different. They're distinct. Day 5 in verse 20, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. He creates Sky creatures, air creatures, flying creatures, if you will, just as we sung about a minute ago. And he fills the waters with swimming creatures. And I've heard there's some that can swim and do a little bit of flying. Some who fly that can swim, but they're distinct. They're different. They're not the same. Day five, I'm sorry, day six, massive differences. Verse 24, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. He creates land creatures, all sorts of beasts that fill the fields of the earth. And then in verse 26, he says, let us make man in our image after our likeness, which he said about nothing else up to this point, nothing else, but now he makes a new inequality we're going to make man in our image but when he makes man in our image does the inequalities don't end there what does he do next let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth what does that refer to everything he just created so he makes man and he puts man in dominion over all of his previous creation or the creation from the day before. And then most remarkably of all, in verse 27, he made man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Not even out of the first chapter of Genesis. And what do you see? Massive inequalities, tremendous inequalities, obvious, 
tangible, visible inequalities. We are not the same. We are not beasts of the field, and the beasts of the field are not the creatures of the sea, which aren't the creatures in the sky, which are not the greater lights or the lesser lights. Distinctions, differences everywhere. Now, I've only highlighted a few. Just consider the kinds That one little word, kinds, according to their kind. And consider the difference between a giraffe and a mouse. Or the difference between a pterodactyl and a little fish, guppy, swimming in your fishbowl. Massive differences. But these don't stop at creation. You might think those are obvious and that's not what we're talking about. Well... Let's continue in Genesis. Turn to chapter 4. In biblical history, there are very clear inequalities that are explained, that are described, that are promised. In chapter 4, we see that different actions have different outcomes. Different actions have different outcomes. Very early on, God makes it clear to man, if you do one thing, you will get one result. If you do another thing, you will get another result. So the results that we have are based in some way on what we do. So what happens to Cain? Verse 6, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? Why are you sad? Your brother Abel's not. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Skip down to verse 11. We know the story and what happens. Cain kills his brother Abel. Verse 11. And now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. Whoa, massive inequality. Cain isn't very good at farming. He's not getting the same results in farming as his kin And as you read through, Cain ends up living in the city. Not probably coincidentally. He builds a city. He has a different set of skills. Because the ground was not producing the same for him. But even without moral actions, this is obviously a moral action with a moral consequence. Even without that, there are incredible distinctions and inequalities between peoples. Look down at verse 20. This is number two in your outline. Adah bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. Huh. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. The Hardy's ancestors. Zillah also bore Tubalcane. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. So what do you notice? 
way back in biblical history, what's happening between the different peoples, the different families. Cain is cursed. The ground is not yielding for him fruit like it does for everyone else. He goes and builds a city. And then among his children, among his offspring, his children have different skills, different abilities, different preferences, inclinations, so that one family likes to live in tents. One family doesn't. Another family likes to live or or raise livestock. Another family is interested in playing musical instruments, and then another family likes to make the instruments. Is there a quality? I would argue, no, there is tremendous inequality. They're not the same. They're not the same. Third, look at chapter 10 of Genesis. There is so much we could look at in chapter 10, but I just want to highlight a few different aspects of this. This is after the flood, and Shem, Ham, and Japheth are Noah's children, and this is what happens to those three, at least part of what happens to them. Verse 2, the sons of Japheth, and they're listed. Skip down to verse 5. From these sons of Japheth, the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans, in their nations. So Japheth, his people spread out among the coastlands, They have their own peoples, they have their own lands, they have their own language, they have their own clans, they have their own nations. Are they all the same? Obviously, they are not all the same. Some went to the coastland. But then look down at verse 8. Ham, his descendants were different. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was unequal, unequal with the people around him. He was far greater than them. And from there, verse 10, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalneh, and the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh. Rehoboth, Ir, Kalah, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kalah, that is the great city. This is one guy, Nimrod, a mighty man. Babel, Eric, Akkad, and Rezin, the great city. Nineveh is not the great city. That's in Jonah. That's when it becomes a great city. But he's, who's the father of it? Nimrod is. Not Cush, not Egypt, not Put, not Canaan, but Nimrod. Nimrod is. The continue, or continue down to verse 20, you'll see the same thing said about Ham. Their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. They all have different lands, clans, nations, and languages. 
Shem, the same thing is true of him. Verse 30, the territory in which they lived extended from Mesha in the direction of Safar to the hill country of the east. So where does Japheth's descendants go? They go to the coastlands. They go to the coast, coastland areas of the Mediterranean, almost certainly. And where do the sons of Seth go? I'm sorry, the sons of Shem they go to the hill country of the east. At least some of them did. And each of them, they have their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. But here's what's interesting. That separation, this chapter 10 called the table of nations. This is where the nations of the earth came from. This chapter is actually after chapter 11. So what's interesting is chapter 11 starts this way, because what did you notice? They all had their own languages, but look at verse one of chapter 11. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. So now Moses is going to tell us how did it come to be that all these different peoples went to different lands, had different clans and languages and nations because they started out with one And look at their goal in verse 4. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to build a tower for ourselves. And let us make a name for ourselves. Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. We're going to come together in one. We're not going to disperse. We're not going to have dominion over the whole earth. We're going to make ourselves a great city. And the Lord frustrates that. Look at verse 7. Let us go down. And there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed from them, I'm sorry, dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth. Whoa, that means what we read about in chapter 10 came about from whose hand? From the Lord. It was the Lord who dispersed them over the face of the whole earth. That means that the sons of Japheth ended up in the coastlands of the Mediterranean. And others ended up on the plateau of Iran, Iran, Babel-ish area, by God's doing. Now, I have no doubt the people also made their own choices and said, hey, let's go this way. And some said, hey, let's go this way. Not that God coerced them or made them go, but the Lord is the one who dispersed them. He spread them out over the whole earth. Think about these massive inequalities. What would you say if you ended up in the Arabian Peninsula and your brother ended up next to the Nile River? Ah, it's not fair. That is not fair. It is not equal. And God designs that intentionally. He does no wrong to those who end up in the Arabian Peninsula. But no one can argue that's the same as living on the Nile River. And for different reasons and in different periods of time, one is greatly superior to another. And God is in control of it all. Now, the third way in which God makes it clear 
that inequality is normal, that is, we're not all the same, is in the church. And so I want us to turn to 1 Corinthians 12 very briefly. You are familiar with this also, but just to point out how radically different we are in the church. I have no doubt that some differences that exist, some inequalities that exist, are there due to sin as a result of moral injustice. I just read one indirectly. What did Cain do to his brother? He killed him. Here's an inequality. Cain's alive and Abel's dead. (laughs) That's pretty significant. Well, how did that happen? As a result of Cain's sin. There's an inequality that comes from sin. I'm not arguing that inequalities never result from sin or that all inequalities are good, only that it is part of God's goodness in creation to make inequality. And we need to learn how to distinguish between the two. Okay, so in chapter 12, I would argue, uh, uh, 1 Corinthians, I would argue that the church is actually far more diverse than the world. I'm not going to really spend any time trying to prove that, but consider whether or not that's true as we look at chapter 12. Jump down to verse 4. Now there are varieties of gifts. Verse 5, there are varieties of service. Verse 6, there are varieties of activities. That is, there are a bunch of different activities, a bunch of different gifts, a bunch of different services. We're not all the same. Verse 11, all these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So why do you have one gift that I don't have? Because God chose that. Why does one person have a service that another doesn't? Because God apportioned to each individually as he willed. We are not all the same. And people, we would not be beautiful if we were. This church would be miserable if we were all the same. It could only happen by undoing God's creation Not just varieties of services, gifts, activities, but look at verse 13. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews and Greeks, slaves or free. All were made to drink of one spirit. We also have ethnicities that are represented in the church. We also have different stations or positions in society. Great inequalities. Verse 14. The body does not consist of one member, but of many members. We are many members. Down in verse 20. As it is, there are many parts. And Paul likens some of us to a hand, some of us to an eye, to a foot. We are different. We have different skills. We have different abilities, different desires. Don't try to make a hand your foot. It doesn't feel good. 
<laughs> a, fa- a foot can handle the pain of walking on the ground all day and your hand cannot. They're different. They're distinct. They're not the same. They are not equal. Look down in verse 28. Not only all of these differences, but also differences in priority and in position. Verse 28. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of helping, and so on. What has God done in the church? He has appointed an order to the gifts. Is that because teachers are more wicked than apostles? Is that because helping is inferior to? None of that. That's not the point at all. What is the point? God's design. He's making something. He's creating an order intentionally and purposely making us diverse, distinct, not equal. Now, I've left out all sorts of stuff in this chapter. I've left out, you might have noticed, all the references to unity, all the references to having the same spirit or doing things for the common good. It is not that we are only unequal or unequal in the church, but we are fundamentally different We're all different. And the unity that is spoken of is not achieved by trying to make one another the same. The unity of the spirit is achieved when we actually accept our diversity. Embrace the differences that God has given to each one of the parts of this body. That is part of God's creation. Our point this morning is that God is not after equality in the sense of sameness. In creation, throughout history, and even in the church, there exist inequalities which God is behind and which do not come from or result from injustice. This does not mean that God has created all inequalities. Or that all inequalities are just. That is not true. I merely want us to have in our minds the vast amount of inequalities that exist without any sin. Without an injustice being done. There are inequalities that are not injustices. To these we could add obvious things like our height. The build of our bodies, our speed, our reflexes, our mental capacities, our memories. Can I get an amen? (laughs) Our mental processes, our aptitudes, our interests, and on and on and on. Are any two of us the same? No, in fact, we marvel when we look at twins and we think, they look just alike. They're not. They're not. We're all incredibly, beautifully different. Now, what about injustice? Let's look briefly at injustice in the Bible, and then I want to come back and spend the rest of our time on how these two relate. Pastor Jeremy is going to deal a little bit more in depth with this issue in his message 
uh, final message in the series, but I want to at least make a framework biblically for injustice. The Bible speaks of injustice in no less than three different ways at three different levels. I think these are the main levels, but there may be more. There may be different types of injustice, but this is a good start. A, at the individual level, at the individual level, there is injustice at the individual level. This is the prevalent way in which injustice is addressed biblically at the level of the individual. Consider Micah 6, 8. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Most of the law is directed at us as individuals and how we as individuals treat other individuals. But there's a second level of injustice, not just at the individual level, but at the group level. There is injustice at the group level. You might have caught this in the psalm we read to begin our time this morning. And the prophets are filled with railings against groups of leaders, judges, tribes, nations, accusing them, condemning them for injustice. Ezekiel 9.9, then he said to me, the guilt of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. The land is full of blood and the city is full of injustice. The whole city brings to mind Sodom and Gomorrah when God went down with Abraham to look at the city and saw how wicked and unjust it was. There's group injustice. Micah 3, 1 and 2. Hear you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil. Who's he talking to? The heads of Jacob, the heads of Israel, the rulers of the house of Israel. And what is he saying? All you rulers, all you heads are wicked You love evil, you hate good, but you should know justice. He's assigning guilt to a group of people, and that's not uncommon biblically. Now, there's a third level of injustice, and even though I think this begins at some level with the injustice of an individual, it's distinct. There is injustice at the legislative level. There is injustice at the legislative level. A simple illustration of this might be Daniel chapter 6. You know the story of Daniel in the lion's den. Well, how did he get there? Some wicked men came up with a new law to outlaw prayer to anyone but Darius. And they got the king to sign it. And now we have legislative injustice. So that if anyone prays to the true God, he's thrown into the lion's den. And what does Daniel say? I'm not stopping. I'm going to keep praying. I'm going to do what I've done every day. I'm going to bow before the Lord God from whom all things come. And I'm going to give him thanks. And so he gets thrown into the lion's den as a result of legislative injustice. Now, this can get really tricky 
Because we have legislation which might be inherently unjust. That is, at all times and all places, this is wrong, it's evil. But you could have legislation that has the intention of doing good. You're trying to do something good, and it ends up being unjust. Or you might have, as happens often in God's irony, a wicked ruler who writes a wicked law and it ends up helping them, the very people they wanted to hurt. What seemed like a good idea 55 years ago might no longer be a good idea today. Even though the intentions back then were good, nobody had malice in their hearts, but the legislation becomes corrupt. Now, this isn't a message on legislation, uh, so that's all I'm going to say for right now. You can bring it up in ABF if you're interested. But I do want to hear, I want you to hear a couple passages from Scripture that make it clear injustice in legislation is a real thing. This is not a modern invention. We read earlier in Psalm 94, can wicked rulers be allied with you? Those who frame injustice by statute. They frame injustice by statute. They write statutes which are unjust so that the whole system becomes unjust. Or Isaiah 10, 1 and 2. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression. They're writing laws to oppress to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right. You have a duty to them and you write a law that makes it legal for you to fail in that duty. That widows may be their spoil and that they may make the fatherless their prey. There can and do exist statutes and decrees which are unjust. Now consider how this goes back to the individual. A decree is unjust if it forbids me from fulfilling my duty to my neighbor. A law that forbids me from fulfilling my duty to my neighbor is inherently unjust. Or it could be unjust because it discourages me from fulfilling my duty to my neighbor. It makes it really difficult for me to love my neighbor. Or the more obvious, a decree could make it easy for me to sin, wrong my brother, sin against or wrong my neighbor. The decree itself could be wronging a certain people. All of those are possibilities for legislative injustice. Now, let's get to the crux of the issue. How do inequality and injustice get distinguished? How do we separate these two? We cannot confuse them, and we cannot assume that they're, in, uh, that they're interchangeable. This is point four in your outline, inequality and injustice distinguished. Now, these five points are really more like bullet points, but there is some flow of thought. First, inequalities exist even when there is justice. 
Inequalities exist even when there is justice. You've already seen a lot of that in some passages, but let's make it real clear. Turn to Matthew chapter 25. Now, I've included three different parables, all of which prove in different ways that we dare not confuse inequality and injustice. And I want to encourage you to read all three of those parables in regard to this issue. But this morning, to demonstrate inequality before your very eyes, I am going to give attention only to Matthew 25, and I'm going to ignore the other two passages. Gross inequality, but that's what we're going to do. Matthew chapter 25, verse 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one, he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also, he who had two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him, And give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given. And he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping 
and gnashing of teeth. Now, of course, an entire sermon could be preached on this parable. So we're not going to cover a lot of it. But I do want to make a few observations relative to inequality and injustice. The most obvious reality is that each of these servants, or probably slaves, was given a different amount. One got five, another got two, and another one. Clearly, this master was not Bernie Sanders. They would have all gotten the same. That parable, incidentally, is in Luke chapter 19. They all get the same amount there, and they get different outcomes. Very interesting. Total inequality of opportunity. Did the master expect the man with one talent to make the same amount as the man with five? Obviously, he did not. Second, and very significantly, verse 15 tells us that he gave to each according to his ability. This means that there was a kind of justice in the inequality of the five, two, and one. It matched with their capabilities. But there were still, beyond that, obviously inequality of abilities. If they all had the same ability, they all would have been given the same amount. Third, there was clearly inequality of outcomes. One servant made five talents, one made two, and one made zero. But notice that every one of the servants was dealt with justly. There was no injustice in what the master did. He understood that the two-talent servant didn't have the same capacity as the five-talent servant. And he was judged based on what he had, two talents, not on what he didn't have, five talents. And the clear conclusion for the one-talent servant was that his wickedness was not based on the inequality of his opportunity. It was based on his character and what he did with what the master gave him. So I want it to be very clear. Inequalities exist even when there is justice. Second, be injustices exist when there is equality. Injustices exist even when there is equality. If in some hypothetical world we could make everything equal and every body equal, what would result would be gross injustice, not justice. Imagine going to the Olympics, following the 100-meter dash after years of training, Usain Bolt flies across the finish line, breaks the world record, the crowd goes wild, they go to the awards stand, and over the loudspeaker comes, all of the contestants have tied for first. What is that? That's a lie. No, they didn't. That guy's faster than everyone else in the world. Don't tell me they're equal. They aren't. 
They're not the same. Trying to make them the same actually results in lies and injustice. Should I tell Leah at the dinner table, you're going to eat the same amount of food as Aiden. Everyone's the same. I don't think they would like that. Trying to make everyone equal when they are not equal will result in injustice. Injustices exist, even if somehow equality is fabricated. For societal examples, see the Soviet Union. C, evidence of inequality in outcome is not evidence of injustice in the system. No matter how great the inequality may be. Evidence of inequality of outcome does not constitute evidence of injustice. This is, I think, paradigm shifting. This statement is radical. And I want you to think about it carefully. It's a rephrasing of what Thomas Sowell calls the invincible fallacy. The assumption that there has to be bias at work if different groups don't have the same outcome. King Solomon said, there's no one among us who knows how to cut timber like the Sidonians. Apparently, the outcome of timber cutters in the Near East demonstrated great inequality. Is that evidence of injustice? As a parent, as a coach, as a teacher, as a boss, nothing is more basic in human interactions than recognizing that people have different outcomes without any need of injustice. Inequality in outcome is not evidence of injustice. Now, at times, it might be suggestive that there is an injustice. It might suggest that. It may be worth investigating, but it is not by itself evidence. D, therefore, that is, because inequality of outcome is not evidence of injustice, judging based on inequality alone is an injustice. It is wrong for us to come to a conclusion based merely on inequality. If when we see an inequality of outcome, we conclude wrong injustice, we actually become guilty of injustice in making that condemnation. Remember, injustice is failing to fulfill your duty to your neighbor. Now, what duty do I have to my neighbor in regard to condemning him? I need two or three witnesses. I need to do careful search and inquiry. And I need to allow for cross-examination. And if I do not give my neighbor these rights, these duties that I have to him, I wrong him when I condemn. And that is injustice. That's our duty to our neighbor. It's a matter of justice. So that if you condemn a politician or a city or a nation, or a police department, or a race, or a ghetto, based on inequality of outcomes alone, you have committed an injustice. You have failed to fulfill your duty to your neighbor. And what's insidious about this is you have done it thinking 
that you are righteous and high and mighty because you condemned those wicked people. On the contrary, you have shown partiality to the poor and you have committed a gross injustice. Flee from people who think like that. Run from people who talk that way. It is injustice to condemn without first giving a hearing. Last, recognize the danger of popular proofs for systemic injustice. Now, in case you're not familiar with systemic injustice or systemic racism, the definition is given to you in number one. Systemic injustice deals with injustice in the system itself, that is in the laws, policies, etc., or a predominant injustice in the members of the system. So either you've got unjust laws that that control the system, or you've got a whole bunch of unjust people all kind of doing the same thing within the system. Why is it so important that we distinguish between inequality and injustice? Simple answer. Because all of the widespread arguments today for systemic injustice are built upon inequality. That is what they're based on. Statistics that show inequality. Let me give you an example. Less, well, about a month ago, deputy editor editor of the Washington Post writes this in an opinion piece published in the paper. If you don't believe systemic racism is real, explain these statistics. That's the title of the opinion. Why a study of police shooting databases found that African-American men were about two and a half times more likely than white men to be killed by police. Explain that. Why African-Americans are far more likely to be arrested for petty crimes. Why study after study shows that police disproportionately stop African-American drivers and disproportionately search African-American drivers after stopping them. If you don't believe systemic racism is real, explain that. Here's a typical presentation of the argument for the proof of systemic, systemic injustice. The title of this article, Seven Ways We Know Systemic Systemic Racism is Real. We're almost done, and we will take a break, I promise. Seven ways we know systemic racism is real. One, whites are 77% of the U.S. population and blacks 13%. But whites have 90% of the wealth in the U.S. and blacks have Two, blacks are twice as likely to be unemployed as whites over the past 60 years. Three, black students, K through 12, are three times more likely to be suspended than whites. Four, blacks are 13% of the population, but account for 40% of the prison population. 42% of blacks own homes. 72% of whites own homes. 
Blacks are 30% more likely to be pulled over by the police. The article then concludes without any additional arguments, no additional arguments. Let's be clear, systemic racism is a corrosive and widespread problem in our society. And we can't dispute the statistics. That is, those are basically accurate statistics. The clear logic of the argument is that such inequality cannot be present without injustice being the cause. Our society, I know, is filled with injustices at the individual level, at the group level, at the legislative level. I have no doubt that there are injustices in our system. And I'm entirely open to the possibility that a preponderance of our members share common injustices. I don't think anyone in this room would be surprised to find out that there's systemic injustice in the media in regard to one group or another. Anyone? No, I don't think so. So there is no denial that it could or does exist. I'm certain that there's racism in America. I'm certain that there are racist people in America, that there's injustice in this country and unjust people in this country. I have no doubt that there are unjust and racist systems and practices at work in our country. There's nothing easier to find among people than them sinning against each other. But every one of those statistics I just gave you demonstrates inequality. It does not demonstrate injustice. I hate hearing those statistics. My my heart aches when I hear 40% of the prison population. What's wrong? Why? I don't want to think that one group is less than less employed than the than another. Nobody likes that. I hate to hear one group is suspended three times more likely than another group or that any of those statistics is true. I don't like that. And so with sincere intentions, my response to that ache might be the temptation to conclude these things ought not to be so. This is wrong. But I want to propose this morning that if based on these inequalities alone, you come to that final conclusion, you will do an injustice. You will be partial to the poor. You will be also unable to make any real contribution to the problems behind those disparities. You will wrongly identify the cause and the problem behind those. Yes, racism is real. Yes, injustice is real. But those dis. Those disparities or differences do not prove that the cause of them is racism. Before we come to a conclusion based on the statistics given, we need to ask some hard questions, awkward 
questions and some taboo questions. Why is it that whites have more wealth than blacks? Why are blacks twice as likely to be unemployed? Why are black students three times more likely to be suspended or more likely to be pulled over or imprisoned? Any real help in dealing with these problems has to address those fundamental questions. But it seems those are the very questions that we're not allowed to ask. William Julius Wilson explained in 2011, Many liberal scholars are reluctant to discuss or even research the role that culture plays in the negative outcomes found in the inner city. You're not allowed to ask those questions. They're off topic. They're they're out of bounds. Consider this one simple question, which is apparently off limits for the mainstream media to ask. Are blacks responsible for 40% of the crimes in the U.S.? Because if they are, then it's patently obvious 40% of the prison population being black is not unjust. But we can't ask those questions. Number two, and we'll continue more on that point in our ABF. Beware of well-intentioned solutions to inequalities that actually lead to systemic injustices. Beware of well-intentioned solutions to inequalities that actually lead to systemic injustices. I want to discuss this particular point in more detail in the ABF hour. This is all I'll say here and we'll close. The strongest evidence of systemic injustice in the United States that I have seen, the greatest, by far, points directly to the policies that were enacted with well-intentioned people trying to relieve these disparities. The very policies that well-intentioned people put into place to help those people are the ones that are now leading to greater disparity, greater inequality. Well, I've clearly gone over. Let me pray. Father in heaven, our hearts desire justice. We want to see our brothers and sisters from other races, ethnicities, cities, nations. We want to see them thrive. We want to see them grow and prosper not only materially, but in righteousness. And there are great disparities across this land. I pray that we would not jump to conclusions that turn out to be unjust, but that we would do careful search and inquiry to see where the problems lie, who is guilty, what needs to be changed that we could encourage, build up, and strengthen one another. 
We pray that you would make us a people slow to judge, quick to love and hope all things of our neighbors. That would extend to both the rich and the poor. That we would do justice, only justice. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.